You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8, we're actually going to be looking at some different pieces of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 today, along with some other scriptures that I'm going to use as well. Um, and, and you don't necessarily need to turn to those, but you just may want to mark those down as you go. But uh, we are in week give, glorify, grow, give is our motto here at our church. And so uh, every January, I take three Sundays to kind of reinforce that among us. And so today we are in the week of give. And uh, today's message is about purposeful giving uh, from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, my first official sermon here, uh, message here, was November 5th. 2017. I preached a couple times in advance of that, but the first one recognized actually as pastor was November 5th, 2017. And if I did my calculations correctly, that means since that day, um, giving some times when I was off on vacation, some times that I had maybe a Sunday off due to some personal reasons, I've preached somewhere in the neighborhood of about 260 messages. These are my preaching journals. When I, when I begin to formulate a message, I, I do it handwritten first and sketch it out and add in uh, uh, what I'm gonna, the scriptures I'm going to use, the points I'm going to talk about, and um, you know, illustrations and, and things like that. And I went back through all of these to, uh, this week in anticipation of this message. And of those 260 messages, roughly, four times have I preached specifically on money or giving in this church. That's 1.5% of the time. Now, there have been other times in in some of those messages where uh, because Jesus talks a lot about money and the Bible talks a lot about money, that in the context of whatever we were discussing that day, it may have been discussed in that message, but specifically teaching or preaching on that topic and the topic of giving four times in 260 messages. Why, Why did I start off this way? Because when you talk about money and you talk about giving, Here's typically the very first response. All the church wants is my money. All the preacher ever talks about is my money and giving. Four times in 260 messages. So I I wanted to, to do that today to kind of go ahead and defuse a little bit. Because the reality of it is the Bible talks a lot about money talks a lot about possessions. It talks a lot about wealth. It talks a lot about how those things show up in our lives and what those things reveal about our lives and what those things reveal about how we think about God and how God works. And we probably should talk about it more. But today, that's what we're going to talk about is what it means to give and what it means to give purposefully. I want to do just a, a real brief sort of background foundational kind of teaching here for just a moment. So, Tithing, which is the way most people talk about giving or offerings, tithing is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 14 when Abram tithes a portion of what he had recouped through a battle to a king named Melchizedek. So long before God institutes any rules, any ordinances, any organizations about how Israel is supposed to tithe, long before Israel is Israel, we have a biblical example of Abram tithing, giving a tenth, to King Melchizedek. That's important for us for this point in view. It helps us to understand that it wasn't just an Israelite thing. 
It wasn't just a God's people thing. Tithing or giving a tenth or giving a spoil or a portion to someone else was something that was very culturally practiced in that day among all peoples. But we know the story. God forms Israel and he rescues them and he redeems them and he begins to give them all sorts of laws and and ordinances and and instructions. And so we, we see this kind of take place in Leviticus. And in the, towards the end of Leviticus 27, he starts talking about a tithe. Give a tenth of your crops, a tenth of your produce, uh, every tenth animal of your flocks. Set those things off as something that's holy to the Lord. In Numbers 18, he talks about a tithe for the Levites specifically. The Levites were the priests. They were the ones who worked in the temple or the tabernacle, who did the functions of uh, the work of the church, if you will, for the Old Testament. And they did not receive an allotment of land in the promised land like all the other persons did. So they couldn't grow their own crops. They couldn't really provide for their families. So there was a specific tithe set apart for them because their work was devoted to God and to the temple tabernacle area and to that, that peace. And it's interesting that in that Numbers 18 passage, what God says is not only, hey, Israel, are you supposed to tithe to these people? But Levites, when you receive it, you tithe off the tithe. So it wasn't like they were just getting it free and clear. They were, they were required to do the same thing. In Deuteronomy 26, there's an example of what's called an every third year tithe on top of the normal tithe. And that tithe was given to Israel. Those instructions were given to Israel to bring in, again, produce, crops, animals. And those things were to be divided equally among, again, the Levites, those who were working in the temple, tabernacle, so on and so forth, to the foreigners, sojourners, strangers in their land. So those who weren't Israelites but who were living in the land were being blessed we could, we could go a different route with that one today if we wanted to, but we won't talk about that right now. To the orphans and the widows in the land. There was a special tithe that came in that was to be distributed to those who were in need over and above the normal tithe that was to come in. And all this tithing pretty much was agriculturally or animal-based. Those things really kind of served as currency in those days. And so even though money began to develop, even in Jesus' day, that type of tithing was still very present. Matthew 23 is this passage where Jesus basically sort of blasts the Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day. And he, he calls out all these woes and all these curses upon them for the way that they act. And right in the middle of it, in Matthew 23, 23, he says this. He says, you tithe from your herb gardens, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier or more important issues of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he doesn't let them off the hook. He says, you should still do one, but you should also be doing the other. And so Jesus teaches there that the tithing by itself is not the most important thing. So what happens in the Bible then, and I'm going to tell you, um, I'm shaky today. I don't think it's a physical shaky if you get my drift. Because today what we're going to talk about is the reality of what the Scripture teaches for the Christian in terms of giving. Probably no other piece of Bible teaching, specifically New Testament, New Covenant teaching, has been twisted more than money. I'm just going to be honest with you. What happens post-Jesus, post-resurrection, is the early church begins to take care of one another without a tithing command. 
We're going to see that in just a few moments scripturally. I'm going to back that up. The early church begins to go about the work of the kingdom of God without anybody in the New Testament saying, here's what you're supposed to give. And in modern church... (laughs) There, there has been a, a propensity for preachers and teachers of the word to say to people in guilt trip type of form, if you don't do this, God's not going to bless you. And, and I got to tell you, I, I think this is a, a teaching that is freeing to God's people. I think it's a teaching that's empowering to God's people. But it's a teaching I think sometimes our enemy doesn't want us to, to hold. Because the longer he can hold you in any kind of fear... The longer he can hold you in any kind of nervousness, even if it's about a good thing like giving money, the more he can hold you in other kinds of fear. And so what happens post-Jesus is, and we'll talk about this more in depth, but really, uh, the early church, there's no command to tithe. There's no command for them to do a specific portion or anything in the New Testament teaching. There are local church examples, and we'll look at those in a minute, but there's no command to tithe. And then in the early 4th century, this guy named Constantine, the emperor of Rome, makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. I've talked about that before. And when he does so, Rome institutes a 10% tithe, or really it was a tax, on all of its people. To be a part of the Roman Empire, to call yourself Christian, meant you had to give Rome 10%. Through the, through the means of the church. And quite honestly, there were a lot of people who came into that, who knew the scriptures, who knew the last couple hundred years of church living post-Jesus, and they were like, I don't know about that one. And a lot of them stopped giving, didn't give. And in, in 585, there was actually a Roman council, the Council of Macon, who decreed that any person who didn't give 10% could be excommunicated from the church. And essentially, that took hold throughout the next however many thousand of years. Across all denominations, across all religious forms. Better give 10%, better give 10%, better give 10%. If you don't, you're going to be kicked out of the church, or God's going to be mad at you, or he's not going to bless you, or some form and variation of that. And what we're going to see from Paul's writings here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that's not New Testament, New Covenant giving at all. It just isn't. Paul's going to talk here about what New Testament giving looks like. And, and from a whole, not just what Paul writes here, but what's written in other letters and, and what we see from the example, New Testament, New Covenant in Jesus Christ giving is about generous giving. It's about honoring God with all of our resources and our wealth, not just what we put in an offering plate, but what we do with what's left over, if you will. New Testament, New Covenant teaching is about how money reveals about our, what it reveals about our hearts, about greed, about being materially coveting. Like that's what the New Testament, New, teaching, New Covenant teaching gives us. And so today we're going to look at three principles from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 of New Covenant, New Testament, purposeful giving. So let's begin in chapter 8 first five verses there for our first point it is a call to give generously this is what Paul writes now I want you to know dear brothers and sisters what God and his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia they are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor but they are also filled with abundant joy which is overflowed in rich generosity for I testify that they gave not only what they could afford but far more 
and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. That's key for us today. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. The context of Paul's teaching here is this thing called the Jerusalem gift or the Jerusalem offering. And I'd like you to, I'd like you, if you want to flip a couple pages to your left to 1 Corinthians 16. I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 as a lead-in to understanding this particular collection. This is what he writes in this, this letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 16. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I get there and try to collect it all at once. When I come, I'll write letters of recommendation for the messengers that you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. So what we're going to read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is his further teaching on what it meant for this church to collect a monetary gift for believers in Jerusalem. Now here's why that's important. Because what he's teaching in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not what it means for believers to give to their local church. You following? So you might, you might say, well... Why, why don't we just deal with a piece of scripture where we see believers in the local church giving to the local church and see what that teaches us? Okay, I'd love to. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. We'll begin in verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe and wonder came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Also from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them. There were no needy people among them because those who owned houses or land would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those who were in need. In the New Testament, the only examples that we have of a local church giving specifically to that local church fellowship are these two examples in Acts 2 and there was no tithing there was no tenthing there was everything we have none of it belongs to us and everything we have belongs to everyone who's here and not only that everything we have should belong to people who are in need and so they brought everything, and they sold land, and they sold houses, and they lived in community, and they did the work of the kingdom. And some of you might be thinking, well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, because <laughs> those Acts 2 and 4 passages, those creep me out a little bit. But that's the reality. 
The only place where the New Testament really truly teaches about what it means to give within the local church context are places like Acts 2 and Acts 4 where it says what the local church did was they gave everything. Everything. So I'm I'm using 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 today to talk about these three principles of giving and to have them kind of run parallel for us. To say this is the way Paul's talking about this specific gift for these believers in Jerusalem who were in need. We can take those same principles and in application talk about what that means for the local church. This is what we do with scripture. We see what the interpretation or the intent of scripture is and then we seek for application. Right? That's what you do with scripture. Let me just give you another example. When we were in the One Another series, the very first week, I joked with you, and I said, I was talking about all the One Another passages we were going to deal with. And if you were there that week, or you watched it online, you remember I said, we're not going to do the one that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Why? Because that was a culturally relevant piece of their day. The intent of Paul's writings in those places where he uses that is that they should actually greet one another with a holy kiss. Because that was acceptable. The application for us from that would be, well, we probably ought to greet each other with a handshake or with a side hug, you know, you know, the Christian safe side hug for opposite sex people. Like that's the application of it, right? But the intent of it was that they should greet each other with a holy kiss. So the intent of Paul's words here that we're going to look at are in the intent of this Jerusalem gift that's going to the believers there in Jerusalem. The application for us is what does it mean for us as a local church? And so again, the first thing we're going to talk about out of these verses I just read is that we have a call to give generously. Paul contrasts the Macedonian churches, which would have been Philippi and Thessalonica, and he contrasts them with Corinth. Now, all three of those cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, were all cities that were port cities, okay? So that means they were located on a body of water, which meant there was lots of business that went on there, which meant that there was money that flowed, okay? So when he talks about these Macedonian cities being poor, uh, he's not really talking about them being like dirt poor, but in comparison to Corinth, they were poor because of where Corinth was located and the sea traffic that that, that city saw, So if you want to think about it from a modern perspective, let's put it this way. Let's take Mobile, Alabama, and Savannah, Georgia, and New York City. I've been in all three of those cities. Mobile is not a poor, dirt poor city. Savannah is not a a poor, dirt poor city. But in comparison to New York City, they're poor in comparison. And so Philippi and Thessalonica were these two Macedonian churches, and Paul contrasts them to Corinth, which would have been much richer. And he basically says, they're giving in a greater fashion than you are. The, these two places that in comparison to you are poor are giving in a greater fashion than you are. Look how he says it in verse 2. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. If you want to write this down and read the end of Acts, 8, or Acts 16 and then the first few verses of Acts 17 this week, and it talks a little bit about both of those cities, Philippi and Thessalonica, and the persecution that was going on for believers in those cities. And what we understand fully from history is this, where persecution is going on, wealth decreases. 
And so they were, they were not dirt poor, but they were losing out on wealth, losing out on money. But in spite of all of that, they were joyful and they were generous. And look how he describes it again there in verse 3 through 5. For I can testify they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. We'll come back to that freeing part in just a moment. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift of the, for the believers in Jerusalem. More than they could afford, eagerly and with anticipation, joyfully. And the question might arise in our minds, they, how come they didn't throw their hands up in despair? How come they didn't say to Paul or whoever else was asking them, you, you don't understand, life's really rough right now. Life's tough. We're having a tough time making ends meet. Have you seen the price of eggs? And yet what they're doing in the midst of all that is giving over and above generously with joy. And so the question arose in my mind, and maybe arises in yours today, as you hear that, how is that possible? How is it possible for somebody to be in that position to give generously over and above what they can do it and do so with joy? In verse 5, we're going to kind of work backwards. Verse 5 gives us the answer. Look again at verse 5. They did even more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and then to us. In other words, what Paul's saying is the first priority in their lives was to give their lives to the Lord. First here does not have to do with time or sequencing. First here has to do with priority. And so what Paul is teaching the church at Corinth and what he's teaching us is the way they were able to do this, to give generously, to give joyfully, to give even more than they thought that they could, is because they put God first as a priority in everything else in their lives. That would be a good question for all of us to ask of ourselves, wouldn't it? Do we truly put God first as a priority in all areas of our lives? We're going to gather tonight for business meeting. Part of the business meeting will be approving the budget for the 2023 budget. Every church ought to look at their budget and look at the line items and say, okay, of these line items that we're talking about paying for this year, what of these are most important to the kingdom of God? And I would submit to you things like outreach and evangelism and those kinds of kingdom works are most important. And what we ought to be asking as a church is, okay, are we making those things priority in our budget? That in my life, am I making God priority over everything else? Is church attendance negotiable? Is serving in the church something I can do if I have time? Is engaging with conversations with lost people, as I preached about last week, is that something that if it presents itself easily, yeah, I might have that conversation, but I'll really leave that to the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or somebody who knows more about those things than I do. Is God a priority in our lives? When I read through this this week, the, the, the very verse that came to my mind and maybe coming to some of your alls is this, too, when in Matthew 6, when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Make God the priority individually, collectively as a church. Make him the priority and his kingdom work the priority. And everything else will be added to you. So the way they were able to do this is because they put God first. Secondly then, go back to verse 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, he says, <coughs> what God in his kindness, or some of your translations use the word grace, 
what he has done through these churches in Macedonia. What he's saying here is that the grace of God or the kindness of God had been poured out on these believers, and in response to his grace being poured out on them, they began to then work in the gracious act or action of giving. Their, their response to God's grace in their lives, uh, specifically the grace of God poured out through Jesus Christ in their lives, their response to that was that an outworking became that they became generous givers. And, and this is really important because you, you and I are capable, every, every person's capable of just giving financially without really submitting ourselves to God. Let's just be honest. Everybody's capable of dropping something off from a plate without putting God first. But the danger there is that that the the enemy can then begin to use that to kind of twist us in our mind to think that somehow we're impressing God by what we give. God is not impressed by what we give. He's just not. He's impressed by does he have your heart. He's impressed by is he priority in your life. He's impressed by... What is your response to his son and the work of his son on the cross and the new life in the spirit? And the proper response should be that when we fully recognize that grace and how incredible it is, we ought to be, as a part of that response, generous people. And that's what had happened in these churches in Macedonia. The more they recognized God's grace, the more they gave through the gracious act of giving. Secondly, then, we have a call to give freely. Uh, Look again there at 8.3. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. Look over, if you will, at Acts 8.8, or I mean, at 2 Corinthians 8.8. Paul says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of, of other churches. So he, he says to the Corinthian church, they're giving freely. They're, they're not doing it under compulsion. They're, they're not doing it because somebody's telling them they have to do. They're doing it as an outpouring, an outworking of the grace of God that's in their life. And then he poses it as a test or approving of the love of the Corinthian church. Now, there are some who say that, that Paul's talking about testing this love or testing if their love is genuine for him or uh, that their love is genuine for the believers in Jerusalem. I, 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 along with some other commentators, think that's wrong, that what he's testing is their love for Jesus. And I say that because if you look at verse 9, right after he says, I'm not commanding you, but I'm testing you. This is what he says. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that by his poverty he could make you rich. I think you take those two verses and you piece them together, and that's where we get that Paul is asking them, basically, I'm testing you to see if you really love Jesus. Do you really love the grace that has been poured out upon you. The, the churches in Macedonia get it. Do you, who are far wealthier, far greater than those churches, do you get it? Uh, there was a, a guy on my Twitter feed this week, and he had preached a, a message to his church about understanding that there are, there are ways that we can say we love Jesus and not demonstrate it. And this was a, there were a couple of things that he said. He said, you can pray before your meals, but be a jerk to the waiter. Hmm. You, 
can read the Bible every morning, but then go to work and exploit people who work for you. You can evangelize on the street corner by yelling at people that God hates them, but then ignore the homeless folks who are sitting right next to you. And Paul's, Paul's saying to the Corinthian church here, under this idea of giving freely, he's saying, these churches over here are doing it. I want to contrast them with you who really have much more wealth, much more resources, much more ability to give it. Is your love for Jesus really genuine? Flip over to chapter 9 for just a moment as a, another example of giving freely. Chapter 9, <clears throat> verses 5 through 7. He's talking about the fact that he's sending some people ahead of him to collect the gift. And he says, I thought I should send the brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. I want it to be a willing gift, not one giving, given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must decide each in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. In, in giving freely, in, in talking to the Corinthian church about giving freely in this gift, and in, in making application for us today in terms of what it means for us to, to give to one another in the work of the kingdom through this local church, he says to us, don't do it under compulsion. Don't do it begrudgingly. And, and I've, I've seen that play out so many times in our modern day churches. Anybody, you don't have to raise your hands on this one, but anybody ever heard this one from a preacher or a teacher? You want to be blessed on your gross or your net? I mean, we, we twist stuff all the time. And Paul says, don't do it begrudgingly. Don't do it under compulsion. Do it freely. Do it, do it because you want to do it, because you recognize it by the grace of God. There's really two specific principles here in chapter 9 in these, these passages. One is the principle of sowing and reaping. Again, what he says, uh, one who plants only a few seeds gets a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Now, there are some who take that and say, see, that's what we're saying. Like if you sow a little seed, God's just going to bless you a little, but if you sow a big seed, God's going to bless you a lot. I'm here to tell you that's a wrong way of understanding that verse. Because again, think about what the gift is for. The gift is for the believers in Jerusalem. So what Paul is saying to them is, if you plant a little, it's going to impact a little bit over here in Jerusalem. But if you plant a lot, it's going to plant a lot over here in Jerusalem. If you, if you give a little, there's going to be a greater increase to these poor believers in Jerusalem than if you just give uh, of, a, of a little bit. But the other, the other principle here besides sowing and reaping is that we give decisively and cheerfully. Look again at verse 7. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. The implication there is this, that when you talk about giving and purposely giving, it should be a matter of spiritual prayer for us. Because as Christians, who controls our heart? Jesus. That's what we tell people, right? Invite Jesus into your heart. So you invite Jesus into your heart, which means he has control of your heart. So the implication of Paul's words here, you must decide in your heart, means you need to spend some time with Jesus. And you need to spend some time with Jesus, saying to Jesus, Jesus, I need to know, what are you asking of me? What would you like me to do? How, how would you like me to give? And so we do it decisively, and then he says we do it cheerfully. There again in verse 7. And don't give reluctantly or a response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives 
cheerfully. Like whenever, whenever Jesus and you have decided on an amount, whether it's a one-time amount or a weekly amount or a yearly amount or whatever the case may be, then you give of that cheerfully. The Greek word here that's translated cheerful or cheerfully is actually also the Greek word that we get our word hilarious from. And I don't think Paul's intent is for us to, like, as we give our offering, be laughing and, you know, have a, have a, like a joker smile on our face. And, but there definitely supposed to be joy in our giving. That, that's what he said about the Macedonian churches, right? They were giving with joy. And he says, we give cheerfully. I, I've, I've witnessed a lot of things in my time in Honduras, a lot of things that will stay with me forever. But um, one, of the, one of the connection pieces that they had in San Pedro Sula, the group that I, that I worked with there, um, was at a place that was basically kind of like an open homeless shelter certain days of the week. And so these certain days of the week, the, the homeless from that area would come in, and they had showers available for them, and uh, mission teams would, would provide haircutting services, and we'd hand out uh, toiletries and things like that, and we'd feed them. And then we always had a, a worship service. <clears throat> and usually somebody, if there was a mission team in town, somebody from that mission team, you know, gave a little sermon or, or sermonette or whatever. And I remember the first time that I did it, <clears throat> that I was there and we were a part of it and we're going through kind of the order of worship and the guy who was in charge of it said now at the end what we'll do is we'll have this song and we'll play it for as they do an offering and I'm thinking oh cool we get to give and help fund the the mission Uh -uh. the offering was that the homeless would give and I will never forget that first time standing on that stage and watching with smiles on their faces, joyfully, some of them sprinting, coming to the front to lay down a lempira or two or three, which for those of you who don't know, a lempira was like 20 cents. But for many of them, that was a big, big sacrifice for them. And they did it cheerfully. They did it joyfully. And that, that scene will forever remain etched in my mind of what I think about when I read Paul's words here. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion. Give cheerfully. The third point then today is this, that among all this, we are to give with trust. If you look back in chapter 8 again, chapter 8, verses, beginning of verse 10, we'll go through 15. He said, here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. That's, that's fairly key because what we read in 1 Corinthians 16 where he said, I'd encourage you to put aside some every week. That had been about a year that had passed. He said, last year you were the first who wanted to give and you were the first who began doing it. Now you should finish what you started. And let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving, given proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. And in this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over and those who gathered only a little had enough. The question arises when we start talking about giving in this way, well, then how much should I give, right? And that's the way we approach spiritual things, isn't it? What's the bare minimum, pastor, that I can give and be okay? 
We, we talk about that in other spiritual arenas too, don't we? How far is this particular sin before it's really sin? How much can I talk before it's considered gossip? How much can I hate before it's actually considered hate? And the, the, the issue for us, church, is that when we view God's grace in the minimums, then what we're really revealing about ourselves is we don't understand God's grace at all. Because God's grace did not pour out at a minimum, did it? God's grace cost him everything. God's grace cost Christ his life. It moved Christ to a point of where the people closest to him rejected him and moved away from him and said they didn't know him. To the very people that he came to save, sided with the Romans and said, yeah, hang him on a cross. And, and, and we, have, we have to repent and move away from thinking in God's grace in minimal terms. Because when we do so, we're not really understanding God's grace at all. And so the answer to the question, how much do I give, has been partially determined. Paul said earlier, right, pray about it. Seek in your heart and then give cheerfully. But the second piece of that answer here is found in these verses and some verses from chapter 9 we'll look at in just a minute. And is that we give trusting God. He says, he says, you don't have to give out of what you don't have. What's the old saying? You can't get blood out of a turnip, right? Don't, don't give out of what you have. Give out of, out of what you don't have. Give out of what you have. Give in proportion to that and give it eagerly and it'll be accepted. Now, when we talk about giving proportionately, there's a couple different ways we can look at this. Uh, giving proportionately out of what we have. Um, in Leviticus 27, first seven verses, there's this um, passage where basically in that time, uh, you could make a vow or a promise to God uh, involving a person. And so uh, if I were alive in that time, I could make a vow to God saying, God, I'm going to give uh, my son Gabriel into service in your temple, and he's going to work for you for, for X number of years, and I promise to do that to dedicate him to you. And if at a later date I decided, well, I really need Gabriel back home because we're not getting enough farm work done, and I need him to help with this. Leviticus 27, 1 through 7 is, is these verses that basically say you can kind of take that vow back, but in exchange for that, you then need to pay some money into the temple treasury. And so in verse 8 of that, there, there's, a, there's a, a monetary valuation given to every person. And, and in verse 8, it says, If you desire to make such a vow but cannot afford to pay the required amount, take the person to the priest... He will determine the amount for you to pay based on what you can afford. I shared that little piece of story with you to say there was an Old Testament precedent for Paul to say, give what you can. If you, if you can't give this, but you can in proportion to what you have give this, then give it. But, but there's another understanding of proportion as well that the, that the New Testament gives us. It's in Mark 12. It's also in Luke 21, um, the story of the widow's might, or the widow's offering. And, and if you're unfamiliar with that story, I'll just kind of give you an overview. Basically, Jesus is in the area of the temple where the treasuries were, and he and the disciples are watching all the people give their money. And he says, large, uh, there were some people coming in giving large sums of money, but then this widow comes in and she drops two coins. 
So here's, if you've never been, been versed on this, here's the way it looked. They had wooden boxes, and those wooden boxes were over top of metal, usually bronze, almost looked like an upside-down trumpet. Have you ever been to, uh, to a, a grocery store or a restaurant or something where they have those things out in the lobby, those big clear plastic things, you drop a coin and it rolls around and around and around, right? And if you have kids, you know how aggravating that is because they just want to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, right? So the noise that makes, right? So what would happen in Jesus' day is they would come to this section of the temple, the treasury, and they would, they would pour their offerings in, and they would clink. They were metal coins. They would clink as they went down through the box and the trumpet. So you might have somebody come in with like a jug of coins, right? And they're pouring it down, and it sounds like one of those coin changer machines at Walmart or Kroger or whatever when people dump them, you know. And it's all this noise, all this noise, all this noise. And then this woman comes along, and she drops in two coins. Clink. And if we're honest about ourselves as humans, what we would say if we were in that situation, we'd be like, that guy that made all that noise, he gave a ton. And that woman who just went clink, she didn't give very much. But if you know that story, what is the teaching that Jesus does? He says, those rich gave cheaply because they really just kind of gave out of what they had left over. She put in everything she had. Let's bring it into modern. We don't use trumpets upside down, and we typically do paper money or checks or whatever else. But I heard this week, uh, a certain NFL quarterback that if he decides to um, re-sign with the team he's currently with, he stands to make $61 million next year. $61 million. And so let's just say hypothetically that he was to join our church. He's more than welcome to if he wants to. He needs Jesus too. And let's say in the offering time, you, you kind of got your eyes on things and you look and he pulls out stacks, right? And he lays stacks in the offering plate. And that catches your eye. And then the person to his left or right, or maybe the person behind him or front of him, like they lay down one bill. Like what we might think in that moment is, oh my gosh, man, he gave so much. But listen, if he stands to make 61 million and he laid down 10 grand, that's nothing. But if that person laid down a 50 and they're working minimum wage 40 hours a week, which means they take home $290 pre-tax, that person gave proportionally out of the grace that they understand they have from God. And so Paul says we give generously and we give freely, but we give trusting God. We give trusting that whatever we give, as long as we do it eagerly and cheerfully, God's going to Make up for it in our lives. Look over, if you will, at, verse, at chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. He says, And God will generously provide all you need. This is right after he talks about giving cheerfully. God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, first part of verse 11, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. What Paul is saying is as we give generously and as we give freely and as we give trust in God, 
what we are the way we are giving is even if God calls me to give sacrificially even if God calls me to give where it hurts I trust that God will provide and there's really sort of a very cyclical thing here that Paul paints like trust God give God gives Trust God some more, give some more. God gives. Trust God some more, give some more. It's not that we trust him and we give so that then we can hoard it. We trust him and we give so that we can continue to give it. Because he supplies it. And, and there, there's this pride issue for us as human beings that sometimes we look at that paycheck or we look at, at whatever it is that we value monetarily or resource-wise and we go, yeah, I did that. No, you did not. God did that through you. He gifted you. He gave you talents, abilities. He gave you opportunities. He did all of that for you. It's one of the warnings he gives Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy. When you come into the land and you come to fields that you've not plowed and you come to trees that you've not planted and you come to streams and rivers that you did not create and you harvest from them thing, from those things, he says to them, don't forget that it was I who gave those to you. And the difficulty for us with wealth and resources and money is that we can take that position. Oh, I did that. No, you did not. God did that in you. And so he plants that seed, he provides that seed, and he provides that harvest for us to be more generous. The reason for all this in closing is this. Look again at 2 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. The, the word enriched there is actually a word that means materially wealthy. Okay? Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel teacher. I'm not telling you that God's desire is for all of us to have 4,000 square foot homes and 18 cars. But there's no doubt that what Paul uses here is a word that says to be materially wealthy or to have great resources. But look again at how... We're supposed to do that. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And as a result of your ministry of giving, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove you're obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. See, what Paul says is when you purposefully give, when you give generously, when you give freely, when you give trusting, we, we sometimes pray it, right? God, take these gifts and multiply them. That's what he's talking about. Like, you, you might give an offering today, and it might impact somebody far away from this community. But because of your generous, free, not under compulsion, cheerful giving, it would bring them to give thanks to God. The giving is never about what we receive. It really isn't. I, I know that I know that David passed out our end of year tax letters to you today. Those of you who've given, and you know, put that out of your head. 
Next time your accountant says, how much charitable giving did you give? Just say, we don't need to worry about that. We don't give for tax breaks. We don't give for impressing God. We give because the way we give allows the church to do things that allows the good news of Jesus Christ to go to them, that allows glory to come to God. And when we are purposeful in that, God provides a harvest. When, when he said in, in chapter 9, verse 6, if you sow a little, you'll reap a little. If you sow a lot, you'll gain a lot. What, what the intent of that was, that the more that they would sow into that gift of the Jerusalem believers, the greater harvest God would produce. Not that if they sowed a lot, God would bless them, but that if they sowed a lot, God would bless those believers in Jerusalem. And when you and I commit to cheerfully, freely, purposely giving, God takes it and uses it for his kingdom. I pray that we find it within our hearts to seek God, to seek the Lord, to put him priority first in our lives, and that our giving, individually and collectively as a church, our giving would mimic the giving of Philippi and Thessalonica. Impoverished, persecuted, doesn't matter. Joyfully giving, freely giving, giving more than we can give because we understand the vital importance that it is to the work of God and his kingdom. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.